Hello, and welcome to the second episode of We Will Remember Freedom, a monthly podcast of anarchist fiction. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. I guess I just want to start by thanking everyone for the kind words about the first show. I'm glad so many people enjoyed the story and my production of it. I'm still kind of feeling this whole podcast thing out, so any feedback is very welcome. This month, I'm happy to announce that we're now a proud member of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. If you want to listen to any other shows on the network, which you do, go to channelzeronetwork.com to hear about revolts all over the world. Here's a bumper for another show on the network. The Final Straw is a weekly anarchist radio show. It's fucking awesome, and you're never going to hear me say fucking awesome on our show, because we're FCC regulated. There's a, a black part of my heart that that just flutters when you, when you talk like that. I... Uh... Talk. Been more yelling. It's a weird sort of like nice thing in a way, but also can get kind of crushing at times. The final straw radio dot noblogs.org. I just want to remind folks that I support this podcast through my Patreon uh, under my name, Margaret Kiljoy. Every month I pay the authors and the narrators because I believe creators should be paid for their work, and uh, I believe that writing is blue-collar work. If you want to help this show continue, if you want to help it expand, I'd, I'd love to you know, buy more stories or even be able to afford to pay people for original stories instead of just reprints. So if you want to help me do that, uh, please consider supporting me at Patreon. You can also, you know, do all that shit like subscribe and rate and tell your friends about the podcast, all of those things. This month's story is called The House of Surrender by Lori Penny. I've known I've wanted to run this story ever since I had the idea for the podcast because it's one of the most fascinating pieces of anarchist literature that I've ever run across. It explores crime and punishment in an anarchist society kind of more honestly or more intimately than most of what I've run across. It, it definitely doesn't hand wave away. What, what do you do with the bad people? And so I don't know if the, the core idea of the story, the idea that there's a, a prison with the locks on the inside, I don't know if that's something that we should be trying to enact or not. But anarchist fiction isn't meant to be a set of blueprints. Uh, it's a set of questions and hypotheses. That's one of the advantages of writing fiction as compared to writing theory or nonfiction. It's easier for people to understand. All theory is, of course, just... It's No theory is a set of blueprints. No theory should be taken as a set of blueprints. No word should be taken as law. I mean, that's one of the whole reasons we're anarchists. But I think that's true and should be true for any ideology. But I think with fiction, it's easier to get that idea across that this is just an idea. This is not saying this is what we all need to do. And so that's one of the reasons that I like this story. I feel like I've got to preface this episode's story with a content warning. It, it includes references to intimate violence, sexual assault, and suicide. It also, it protagonizes people who aren't the best people, which is probably necessary or at least useful in order to get across the ideas of the story, but it's complicated at best and can be uncomfortable to listen to. Uh, I talk with Lori a bit about her choice to do that in the interview after the story, and 
if you want to hear her reasoning and also how her perspective on doing that kind of writing has changed in the four years since she wrote this one, uh, listen to the interview after the show. Lori Penny is more known for her journalism than her fiction, but she wrote the anarchist science fiction novella Everything Belongs to the Future, which gets its name from a Louise Michel quote. Louise Michel, of course, is another anarchist fiction writer, although she's more famous, at least in anarchist circles, for uh, fighting in the Paris Commune and for living a long life as an anarchist speaker and presenter, primarily in France. So now Laurie is writing for TV in Hollywood, and I'm looking forward to seeing what she does at the medium. We talk about that as well as what else she's been up to after the story. I hope you enjoy it. The House of Surrender by Laurie Penny Narrated by Ben Church This story first appeared in German in the magazine Der Freitag in 2015. Not far from here, and many lifetimes journey away, there is a place called Sanctuary, where they grow almonds and avocados and the weather is a perpetual late spring. The town and its hundred thousand happy folk are watered by a wide, gray, treacherous river, and in that river is an island where no trees grow, and on that island is a house unlike any other. It has had many names, but the people of Sanctuary have forgotten them. They call it the House of Surrender. To get to the House of Surrender, you must cross the Grey River, although there are few boat captains brave enough to make the crossing, not for all the gold and silver in your purse. The river is full of hidden currents and treacherous whirlpools that appear to suck down unseasoned swimmers and sailors to an icy grave in the grimy water. And besides, nobody has used money in sanctuary for a century and more. The people of this town take what they need, and give what they can, and answer to no ruler but the common good. So there is no law to compel any sailor to take you to the island in the river where no trees grow. If one of them takes pity, you may pay your passage with a promise, or a gift, or secret, although those who travel to the House of Surrender have too many of those, and precious few worth sharing. Pull yourself up to the jetty and climb the steps cut into the cliffs, walk half a mile over the rocks, and you'll find the house. Its walls are thick stone, whether that's to protect those inside from the outside world or whether it might be the other way around is a question nobody here cares to answer. The heavy doors are not locked. Walk the halls. Nobody's going to stop you. Here you will find the worst and weirdest of men and women, strange and dangerous creatures who cannot live among their fellow humans, or else their fellow humans will not have them. This one is a rapist. That one poisoned her husband and infants in a fit of madness after the twins were born, This one beat his wife until the teeth flew from her head. That one cheated his neighbors of all their harvest until the children sickened and starved. Had they stayed in the sanctuary, these people would have had to face their neighbors' justice. Instead, they come to the house of surrender, where nobody will harm them, and they can reflect on their transgressions and all the safety stone walls can offer, which is less than you'd think, as most of them bring the terror with them across the Grey River. In my two-score years as warden of this place, I have known them all, the wicked and the warped, the tortured and the repentant, and those too far beyond the sphere of decency to contemplate redemption. 
but none were as strange as Robert Schmidt. He arrived one cold June morning, courtesy of a boatswain who had been too shocked at his appearance and obvious distress to consider turning him down when he begged passage. The coins he offered her, which he also tried to press upon me, were as strange as he was. Different shapes and shades of corrosive metal, all emblazoned with the faces of stern men, great buildings and motifs of war and conquest that were chilling to look at, though I did not look away. I took one as a gift, a silver that he said was called a quarter, although its shape was perfectly round. He was a thin, frayed string of a man, this Schmidt, his skin pale as boiled fish, so much so that anyone who saw him knew that he had come from far away. That was all we knew at first, as he would not speak to us beyond demanding to be released, and no records could be found of his birth or previous life, only the report we had received from the assembly of the village that sent him here. We took him to room 14, where he yelled for three hours. First he yelled to be released. Then he yelled in his strange foreign accent for his mother. Then he just yelled. I could hear the screaming from down the corridor as I went over the morning's reports. I gritted my teeth at the dumb beast noise and decided to do something about it. The corridors of the main asylum were light and airy, even on a cold winter morning with the sun floundering in an ash-gray sky. Below the wide wooden walkways, some of our other wardens were setting out bowls and spoons in the communal area, ready for breakfast. The murderer in room 13 put his head up to the grill of his cell as I passed. "'Can you ask him to stop?' he whispered. "'I'll try,' I promised. "'Do you want music?' The murderer, who had strangled his own brother in a rage twenty years ago, nodded hard. "'Yes, he did want music.' I fingered my tablet— a few seconds later, a gentle, rhythmic tune started spooling from the speaker in the corner of his cell. He smiled and closed his eyes and started to rock gently back and forth on his sleeping pallet. I took a deep breath in front of the door to room 14. Then I pounded on the grill. "'That's enough!' I yelled. "'You're upsetting your blockmates. If you don't control yourself, there will be consequences.' The screaming stopped. Two blissful seconds of quiet, heavy breathing." Let me the fuck out of here, Schmidt said. You people have no idea the mistake you're making. I'm sure there's been no mistake, I said. But if you've got an issue to raise, why don't you talk to me, or one of the other wardens about it, instead of screaming? I heard a shuffling noise as Schmidt dragged himself up to the speaking hatch, then his face appeared. I stepped back, alarm fisting up through my guts. I had forgotten quite how strange-looking Schmidt truly was, with his wild beard and ice-blue eyes. I don't know why I'm being kept here, he said in his languid, long-ago accent, but when someone works out who I am, you're going to be in a world of trouble, so I suggest you open this door right now if you value your job. I can't open the door, I said. On whose authority am I kept here? I was truly confused. Where had this man come from to ask such a thing? On nobody's authority, I said. Nobody has the authority to keep you here against your will. You chose to come here, for your own safety and others. Then why am I locked in? You aren't locked in. I can't open the door because it locks from the inside. If you want to get out, you'll have to unlock it yourself. You're lying. There's a bolt underneath the door and another one up top. They're a little stiff sometimes, but I promise you, you're free to leave. I must warn you, though, I said a little louder. 
that if you try to harm me or anyone else in this building, I'm going to have to use my shock stick on you, and I don't want to do that. Silence. Then the slow, resentful thunk-thunk of two bolts drawing back. Can I come in? I said. Silence. My name is Gorman Rain, I said. I'd like to come in and talk to you, but I need to know you're not going to attack me, because I don't want to have to hurt you. It has been a pleasant morning so far, and I don't want to end it with your vital fluids on my shoes. Come in if you want. I came in and sucked in a breath through my teeth. The man in room 14 had overturned all his furniture and thrown his food tray across the room. There were dabs of blood on the walls where he'd been pounding. He sat curled like a question mark in one bare corner. Is there any way I can help? I asked. I need you to tell them, he said, that I haven't done anything wrong. If there's been a misunderstanding, I'm sure you can explain yourself, I said. But there's rarely misunderstanding in cases like yours. What reason, after all, would the girl have had to lie? I could see that Schmidt was going to be difficult to reach. Do you even know who I am? Only what you've told us, and what you told the people of the village you came from. Your name is Robert Schmidt. You say you're a scientist, but there are no records of where you practiced, or where you were born. I'm from here, Schmidt said. I'm from here 350 years ago. I took a deep breath. So, how did you come to be here now? I asked. In a time machine? I am a scientist. Well, a researcher. It's one of the first multi-century journeys my lab has made, and I need to be allowed back to the place where I came through. Why? So I can tell them it worked. I asked a junior warden to keep a subtle eye on Schmidt for the next few days to check that he wasn't hurting himself. Inside, I was cursing my own foolishness. I had clearly made a mistake on my initial diagnosis. I had assumed that Schmidt was merely uneducated and lacking in empathy. He appeared instead to be quite mad. I wanted to help him, this young man. I wanted to know the ghosts that haunted him so that together we might banish them and find him some measure of peace. I am old, and in forty years I have tended so many lost creatures on this abstemious rock, and most I have been able to stretch out a hand to, though not all come here hoping for peace. My place is not to judge them, but to help them, to protect them, whatever harm they have done in the lives they left behind. This is my work, has been the work of my life since I came here on my own rickety midnight boat so long ago. To reach the unreachable with soft words and offer them a bridge back to the world. I felt certain that however Schmidt had transgressed, however mangled his mind by suffering I could not guess at, I could help him. Perhaps I was arrogant. I see that now. But there was more. What I did not, could not, admit to myself was that Schmidt frightened me. And the most frightening prospect was the idea, remote, but impossible not to consider when you looked at that strange white face, heard that odd, high voice, that he might be telling the truth. The next day I returned to speak to Schmidt. I brought fresh rolls and coffee, and we took breakfast together. He had restored order to his room during the night, and perhaps it was in repentance for his previous rudeness that he answered almost immediately when I asked if he was feeling better. I'm not crazy, he said. You must see that. It's not my place to pass judgment on how you see the world, I said, which was quite true. I'm merely anxious that you cause no further harm to yourself or any other citizen. I'm not like the lunatics in here, he said. 
I didn't even hurt that girl. It was a misunderstanding. They say that you violated her autonomy, I said. They sent a report. It wasn't like that, he said. He was looking away from me and eviscerating his role with his hands. Besides, it seemed so primitive here, I assumed. I don't know what I assumed. He started in on a second roll. I suppose I was excited to be in a new place. That night, I reread the report that had arrived with Schmidt on the solar tablet I reserved for official communications. It was long enough that the village assembly had clearly thought it important to inform the house of the full facts. He came to us in the last week of May, it ran. He appeared at the door of a farmstead, badly bleeding and disoriented. The people of the house, after they had tended his wounds, brought him to the town square, where he explained that he was a traveler from another time. We have heard news of such things happening, but we would not have given them credit were it not for the strangeness of his behavior. Schmidt was, from the start, rude and unsocial, which was put down to his evident foreignness. He insisted on being brought to the head of our community, and it took some time to explain to him that no such position exists. He thinks in an extremely hierarchical manner, and though he claims to be a scientist, he cannot seem to credit the evidence of his own senses. For this reason, many of our young people remain convinced he was playing a practical joke on us. Schmidt spent a great deal of time in the tavern and also in the library as his strength returned, taking notes on parchment which he used freely from the central stocks, apparently unaware of its great expense. He was from the start dismissive and unsocial towards the female and non-binary among us, seeming unable to hold true conversation with them. One of our young men offered to have intercourse with him, at which point he became angry and violent. The young man was injured, and Schmidt had to be restrained. One young woman in our research team took an interest in Schmidt's work, gifting him freely with her time and attention to help further his studies. She reported to us that she woke to find a drunken Schmidt attempting to have intercourse with her. She communicated clearly that she did not want to be part of intercourse with him, but he did not appear to understand. In his culture, a signal of interest by a woman permits the man to use her body to relieve himself of his need at any time thereafter, and this is what Schmidt proceeded to do using his strength to force her submission. Thereafter, I clicked the tablet shut. I had read enough. Schmidt had clearly fooled this rural assembly into accepting his wild story of time travel to avoid taking responsibility for his own empathetic defects. He would not fool me. I would reach him, even if he was determined not to be reached. It was autumn and high harvest, the time when everyone with the strength and skill to farm lends themselves to the almond groves. A fresh breeze trembled from the plantations, and I longed to be among them, to drink hot cider and taste roasted almonds at the evening celebrations after the gathering in. But I have not joined the harvest since I came here to work at the House of Surrender. No one could compel me to stay away, just as no one could force the people of the town to bring in the fruit before it rots on the trees. There is an awkwardness, though among those who know my duties. Sanctuary is not a large community, and after a while, everyone's business is the subject of common gossip. Instead, I walked about the grounds with Schmidt, sometimes talking, more often in silence. We had come to an agreement for the time being. He would stop demanding to be released and complaining that he did not belong here, and in return, I would behave as if I believed his time travel story. In truth, I was not sure whether he believed it himself. Still, I allowed him to question me as if he were truly from a long-ago world with laws and customs alien to our own. Why do you do this? he asked me once. Why do you work here if you don't have to work at all? Most people work if they can, I said. 
We do the work we feel we're best suited to. There can't be a lot of applications for this place, said Schmidt. Not too many, I admitted. It takes a certain mindset. Most people worry about being around antisocial, violent individuals all day. Don't you? I closed my eyes, looked down at my broad, blunt hands, so much like my father's, though I have kept myself from using them to hurt another human being. Of course, I said, but even more, I believe that those who can't live with others need a place to go. Rehabilitation if it's possible. Asylum if it isn't. What about justice? What about it? For the real monsters here, not like me, the murderers. Their victims and their families, won't they want to see them punished? Perhaps. But would that bring their loved ones back? That's not the point. Then what is the point? Sometimes the families will demand amends. Sometimes when the inmates return to their communities, they work the lands of those they have wronged, or find some other way to prove themselves reformed. And if they don't, then they lead very lonely lives. Or they come back here. And do you think that's acceptable? Most people think being shut out of the community is punishment enough. Otherwise, we're no better than... Than me? I held his eyes. Than the world you're from? Yes. Schmidt was certainly from another world, if only in spirit. You think you're better than me? No, I said. I think you can be better than you are. What if I don't want to be? Visitors, especially official ones, are an unusual event on the island. So when a science history counselor from Sanctuary itself arrived by barge along with not one but two assistants, I knew the matter was of utmost importance. I'm here about Schmidt, said the counselor, whose name was Sophia. She wore well-cut overalls and could not have been more than thirty-five, but she wore her hair in the half-shaved style traditionally adopted by those who have already rotated through the senior levels of the science councils and have the authority of learning. Thank you for coming all this way, I said, pouring coffee for us both. Not at all. Robert Schmidt is of great interest to the Science Council. I'd been meaning to make a personal visit. Is he settling in well? We had some problems at first, I said. He claims that he is no foreigner, but is in fact from here, many centuries ago. He does not seem delusional, merely troubled. It's perfectly true, said the counselor. It's been happening more and more, these people arriving from the first era of time-jump technology, back when there were no guidelines. I felt a bubble of excitement expanding beneath my ribcage and buried my face in my coffee mug to hide it. Schmidt is the first from his time to appear on the West Coast, however, said Sophia. We were dismayed to learn that he had been obliged to surrender, Sophia continued. Dismayed, but not surprised. The time from which he comes... Well, there was a great deal of savagery. He does not seem like a savage man, I said. After he learned that he was free to leave, I found him to be courteous, if a little strange. Have you begun his therapy? Yes, I said. He's very receptive, although still in deep denial of why he had to come here. That's to be expected, said Sophia. The moral codes of his culture were very different from ours. She pursed her lips over her coffee cup. As a young man, I might have desired her greatly, a woman of such wit and elegance. I reprimanded myself for thinking such coarse thoughts about someone who was, however briefly, my superior. A decadent society, she went on, her bright black eyes holding my own. A violent, authoritarian world of class, racial, and sex hierarchies. A culture that drove itself to destruction in pursuit of profit for the very few. We just can't understand it through the lens of our own society. I nodded, 
Now I had been given permission to believe Schmidt, it all made sense. That, in fact, is the substance of our visit, said Sophia. Schmidt could help us a great deal in understanding the culture and technology of his time, but for his safety we feel, the council feels, that it would be better for all concerned if Schmidt were to remain here, in the House of Surrender, on a permanent basis. Are you saying that Schmidt is in danger? I'm saying that Schmidt is dangerous, and there are people who would, if it came to it, judge him too dangerous to live as part of this society, because of what he did, because of what he is, said Sophia. Through no fault of his own, he happens to come from the most frightening place imaginable. What place is that? The past. I was silent. You must ensure, she said, that Schmidt does not come to any harm. Break the news to him gently. Can he not be returned to his time? I asked. Impossible, said Sophia. We cannot return a time traveler to a culture without any sense of the common good. His leaders set their future on fire before the first leap engine was even in use. Who's to say he wouldn't do the same? He needs to be kept somewhere out of the way, or who knows what he'll do, or what might be done to him. Or, I thought, what he might do to himself. When I told Schmidt that he would not be allowed to return to his own time, he said nothing. He did not rage or argue as I would have expected. Instead, he locked his door and did not emerge for three days. Eventually, I had the guards break down the door. There was blood everywhere. He had tried to open his wrists with a broken spoon and failed. He could not bring himself to end his life. Not alone. I understand now, he kept saying. That was all he said. Poor soul. There could never be peace for him here. I wrote to the Science History Council, but received no reply. So... I have made my decision. Tonight I will go to room 14 and bring Schmidt his supper in person. We will eat together and talk together, and in the course of our conversation I will mention, casually, the small cove hidden between the rocks on the north side of the Bear Island, where I keep my own boat. The boat that took me here 40 years ago, when I came to this place of surrender after I woke in the night to find my hands. The thick, blunt hands I had for my father closing around my lover's neck. I had planned to return one day, when I could be sure that I was old and frail enough to be of no more danger to anyone I cherished. Now I know that I will never leave this place. Schmidt, though, will choose what he will choose. Perhaps he will go down to the cove and take the boat out on the grey river and cast out on its treacherous waters, all alone towards the land. And perhaps the currents will not pull him down. And perhaps the people of Sanctuary will spare him. Or perhaps they will give him what he could not give himself. Not forgiveness. Redemption. They will know, of course, and they will want to come for me, but (laughs) what can they do? I will take my bunch of keys and find a door to lock behind me. There are always more rooms in the House of Surrender. So everyone who's listening to this just heard your story, um, the the House mm-hmm. of Surrender, and I guess I wanted to start with kind of asking you the the story of that story, how that how that story came to be. Well, um, you were involved in that story, obviously, because um, I think when I wrote it, uh, we were dating at the time, and we were traveling around in your van, and um, 
it was a story I was really interested in and I was really, really determined to finish. And I remember we stopped at a Walmart car park and I sat at a Waffle House and um, you introduced me to the, the wonder that is the Waffle House, um, which we don't have in the UK. And, um, and they're grits, which are just amazing, I think. And I sat there for hours um, finishing that story. And um, it was originally published in a German magazine. Um, and then the, um, the English translation was put out simultaneously. But um, the story behind the House of Surrender, it really came out of um, stuff that we've been talking about, you and me, and stuff that had happened a few years earlier when I was living in San Francisco with uh, a couple of friendship groups of mine where men who were important to the community, who were well-known and well-loved, had been accused very credibly of um, of assault, of behaving very ba- very badly, and um, and this wasn't the first time I'd seen that happen within left wing communities specifically. Obviously, it happens in in every kind of community you'd think of, but it's very interesting how it's interesting to me how left wing and nominally progressive communities deal with this sort of thing within their own augusts. Right. Because they don't none of us have the tools yet to deal with patriarchal violence within our own communities. And those tools are deliberately confiscated from us almost. But watching people try and fail to hold these men accountable in a way that didn't involve the justice system was well, that's that's where this story came from. Um imagining basically what what is going to happen to violent men and to rapists um in a world without government without law yeah that uh it's interesting because the the story itself is framed by the publisher about mostly being around consent and rape culture um yeah as compared to the story itself which also gets into this uh fairly large question of how you deal with uh, a society without prisons. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, this very interesting book came out recently um, by Baroness Helena Kennedy. She's been made a Baroness in the UK, um, who is um, a, uh, a legal scholar and, and a barrister. And uh, one of the things she says is that, well, practically speaking, if you think about justice, um, the uh, the idea, the notion of consent, of what quali- what constitutes legal consent, has never actually been set at the level of women's experience. It's been set at just below the level of consent that male culture deems appropriate. And so obviously the question of law, the question of what our legal systems are adequate to is, is central to this notion of consent that's come up obviously more and more in the years since I, since I wrote this story. Obviously this was, this was pre-Me Too, this was pre-Weinstein um, and Epstein and all of, these, uh, all of these so-called sex scandals. I find it very interesting that they're, they're, they're still called sex scandals when um, the scandal isn't the sex, it's the violence and the abuse, surely. Um, not just the fact that sex may or may not have been had. Um, but the idea how we deal with violence and abuse within a legal system that was never set up to protect women from men or to protect 
to protect anyone from sexual violence, but to protect, nominally at least, individual men from the power of the state. That's a very interesting question to me and one to which I don't think anybody has a perfect answer. But um, the idea that if some people can't, just cannot be handled within within a, any community, if, if, if people can't actually, if people can't take responsibility for their actions, if, um, if atonement and forgiveness is impossible, then there should be somewhere that people should be able to go. That was interesting to me. I don't know. I'm not sure the story succeeds on every level, but it's as a thought exercise, I'm reasonably pleased with it. Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, one of the things I find so fascinating about it is the idea of the, the prison with the, the locks on the inside. I mean, are you really consenting to go lock yourself up? If you don't go lock yourself up, people are going to kill you. But I still don't actually see a a, a better or clearer way of handling it. Um, you know, it's it's uh, sometimes people say like, you know, kicking people out of communities is comparable to Siberian camps or whatever, but it it seems like there's a huge difference when it's kind of, I don't know. Yeah, well, ostracism is brutal. Um, and I think we've seen the, that fear of ostracism within within our communities right now is um, is is very overwhelming. And um, and I don't think it's I don't think it's easy to dismiss that fear of being kicked out of every social circle of being made persona non grata of um losing all your friends and your support system because, you know, as sort of arbitrary um, extra legal justice. And that's often when people start talking about witch hunts, when people start talking about, you know, mob justice, because that's that's the thing that, um, you know, the men I speak to, and I've speaking, spoken to a lot of men over the past couple of years, you know, my work as a journalist about about their fears around me too. And that's what they feared. I mean, I, I know no person, and especially no man, who would um, who would who would pick ostracism over just being beaten up. <laughs> you know, I think people would prefer, you know, to just to just have a fight and take some physical punishment. The ostracism is so much more fearful. But ostracism has already been a solution to how we deal with sexual violence in communities for many, many, many years. It's just that previously, and, you know, still, uh, the people who are ostracized and silenced and called crazy and driven out of their communities have been the victims, mainly women, mainly young people and queer people. And um, that silencing and ostracism is already used as a tool of social control. It's just not used to hold abusers accountable it's used to silence victims so i think we have to be incredibly clear here what we what we're talking about because nobody is standing up and saying you know what about these women what about these these victims is it okay to ostracize them they haven't even done anything that makes sense you often write in your stories or at least some of the stories that i've read you often write from the point of view of someone who is not expressing the same ethics that you yourself espouse. Mm. And I'm, I'm curious uh, kind of what led you to those decisions, both about the warden and the prisoner in this story um, and how you feel like that worked or. Huh? I guess I do in some ways, although um, 
in in a lot of stories I um I write a lot of depressed lesbians for some reason and um and I don't know if that's expressing some sort of deep deep longing within me because I'm just an anxious bisexual um which is very different but um yeah in my in my longer in my longer novella um everything belongs in the future everything belongs to the future so I can't remember the name of my own book um I've uh you know, it's from the point of view partly of somebody who is an undercover police agent. And um, I think for me, it was a more interesting way in. It was a more interesting way of I, I don't I like writing central characters who you're invited not to sympathize with. I like getting inside those heads because it's assumed that that kind of character is automatically going to be the hero. Um, although, although I'm fond of the warden in this story, I must say, I think that the warden is meant to be an example of somebody who has, um, who's come to terms with their own inner contradictions and found a useful way to be in the world. Um, and I think, yeah, I like the warden in this story. I'm not sure anybody else does, but you know, I'm a fan. Um, it's, uh, but, but I think in future, I'm going to move away from that in writing and work I'm doing. I think, um, look, as a society, we do we do a little too much of um, empathising and sympathising and trying to get inside the heads of violent men and compromised men. And I think, um, you know, empathy and understanding are always good. But if we have a limited amount of that of attention to pay and if we have a limited amount of empathy and understanding to show in any given day, we should probably not start and finish by showing empathy to violent men quite honestly so i reckon i'm moving away from that yeah um one of the core ideas of this story is that the the notion of what counts as consent that we currently have is Mm. wildly distinct from what any kind of like uh ethical society or whatever would have um how do you think that we move towards that society (laughs) <laughs> oh god this is a big question it's a saturday morning but um honestly um i'm not sure there is ever gonna be within law a universally agreed upon notion of consent and what consent is and a universally agreed upon experience because um, the closer you get to the actual moment and experience of consent, the more everybody's experience on the granular level differs. Um, what we need, um, and I'm writing a big book about this, what we need is not a new set of rules, it's a new set of ethics. Because at the moment what we have is laws without ethics. Um, the ethics of our society around consent is this deeply neoliberal idea. Basically, you take as much as you can get and you game the rules as much as you can in order to get the maximum amount of gratification out of the other person without technically infringing. Is it this rules lawyering of other people's other people's hearts and souls? And um we, with changing just changing the rules, um, although that's a good place to start, is not going to change that until we move towards a different a different set of ethical principles around what consent is, and and a kind of a sexual culture that doesn't view 
just access to another person's body as the ultimate goal of sexuality? What if that wasn't the goal? What if the goal was to make sure the other person had a really brilliant time? You know, what if the goal was to ensure some kind of connection or excitement or fun? Um, there are all kinds of different end goals you could have rather than just this sort of competitive, acquisitive number of fucks, you know, number of people whose bodies you get access to, amount of control you have over that person. And I mean, I'm a I'm a kid of two public defenders, as you call them here. And um, so this question of um, of uh, what law covers and what it doesn't cover has always been interesting to me. But Honestly, without changing ethics, there's there's very little point in changing those kinds of laws and laws around sexuality. They function as a bump as a set of bumpers. They function ideally as a guideline system and um, and they're there in case pe- in in the in the event that people need them. They're not meant to establish, you know, the gold standard. The gold standard isn't let's not rape one another. Um, but within a society in, within a society that has some that has strong sexual ethics and you know is actually mature about this stuff, um, rules the actual rules will be able to be interrogated on a person-to-person basis. Like, for example, um, this isn't a perfect example, but think about the the age of consent, right? The idea that there is a certain age below which it's always predatory and always abusive to to have sex with another person. Now, the, the age of consent laws vary from country to country. In a lot of places in the US, it's 18 years old. In the UK, it's 16 years old. Um, but on a practical level, um, what everybody seems to agree on is that you shouldn't shag children, is that you shouldn't be abusive in that way. Um, and of course, as we're, as we're seeing in numerous publicized cases right now, there are always people who seem to be able to get away with that shit. Um, but what is basically agreed on in law is that you shouldn't be able that below a certain age, you shouldn't be able to. T- it's taking advantage if you sleep with somebody that much younger. And because there is that ethical principle you know, maybe it's not as strong as it should be that, but that ethical principle is in place, then there are places where those rules are adjusted. For example, in the UK, there are what we call Romeo and Juliet exceptions. So the age of consent is 16. But if you are a 16 year old and you are holed up before the judge for sleeping with your 15 year old partner, practically speaking, it's very, very unlikely that you're going to get convicted for that. That's the Romeo and Juliet exception because, you know, there's just a few months between those kids. Um, People can understand that that's not the same level of ethical infringement, even though the letter of the law has been broken. Do do, do you see what I'm trying to get at here? Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the things that I feel like Emma Goldman and a lot of other anarchists talk about a lot is Mm. this idea that the law is kind of incapable of encompassing ethics and encompassing ethical behavior and yeah absolutely that um so which which leads me into the question that uh we don't have to talk about if you don't want to sort of be pigeonholed Mm -hmm. on on a podcast but if you want to talk about your 
own political identity and or your interactions with anarchism versus socialism and other things like that? Yeah, well, I mean, I've thought of myself as an anarchist for a very long time. Um, it's the only kind of political movement that has that's felt like a home for me. And I come to anarchism through feminism, honestly, and um, because I started reading feminist books at a young age. And then I realized that there was all there were all kind of bigger economic questions without which you couldn't answer basic questions of uh, of gender and power and, and, and abuse and um, started doing that reading. And um, I've always I've always felt that there is no there is no way to be a feminist unless you are in some way of the left. It doesn't make any intellectual sense. But for me, um, I'm not the biggest fan of of labels. In, I mean, I know that's the <laughs> most people who say that they're not the biggest fan of labels then go on to say something awful and label other people. Right. So I don't want to be doing that. But um I think anarchism is more about what you do than who you are. Much like feminism, really. Um, I would say feminism is is not what I am. I'm not. It's something that um, something that I practice or I try to practice on a daily basis. And anarchism too. Um, I think much like that is um, is just in the way I operate in my daily life. I. You know, if I have excess of something, it makes no sense to me not to share that. And um, it, I, I try to behave as if I was already living in the kind of... Alistair Gray says you, you need to work as if you were in the early days of a better nation and living in a way that is sort of prefigurative politics. But, you know, for the last year or so, I've been living out in, um, in Los Angeles working on... Um, working in TV writers' rooms, um, as well as, you know, writing um, writing actual journalism and feminist stuff. And um, one of the things that's been interesting to me is um, working in these writers' rooms, which are really, like, collaborative efforts. There's a lot... One of the things that... Well, I'm very new to this. I sort of got dropped in from a completely other industry. But one of the things that actually has been an advantage is having you know, been to a lot of anarchist meetings and learned about consensus building because at the end of the day, people kind of have to agree on what the story should be and how to treat these characters that we're, um, that we're making up and everybody has their own thing to contribute. And, um, and I kind of, when I get a little bit more up the very strict hierarchy of a writer's room in some ways, but it's constantly shifting. I'm, I'm definitely going to teach people about consensus decision-making because um, I think that will save a lot of time. <laughs> That's interesting. See, Go ahead. Yeah, it's, um, no, it really is. It's because, I mean, TV writer's rooms are, are, are mental. Like you sit around, you know, eight, to 12 people in a room sometimes and uh, and you talk about what the story should be and you beat out every plot point and um, it really is scripting by consensus sometimes and everybody then goes off and writes their own part of it but it's you know in this currently I'm working on the haunting of hill house um what well, season two which is the haunting of Bly manor and um one thing I didn't realize is that, you know, there's one episode that I'm, I've been given to write. And after this, I'm going to go back and frantically be finishing it. But in every single episode, there's not an episode that every single person in the room hasn't had their stamp on. 
and we've been trading off and giving each other lines and that person would say that there and it doesn't work or it doesn't work half as well if everybody is constantly jostling for credit in that room and going, no, that was my line. That was the bit that I did. You know, you can't do that because I don't want you to. Um, it works really well if it's sort of run on mature anarchist principles, really. It does also, I must say, though, it does also work well if, if one person takes ha- is is ultimately making a decision about it. It can change who that person is. But I think that the tragedy of the commons does apply to TV writing as well as it applies to lots of things. Um, sometimes you get so into the weeds that you just need somebody whose job it is to make the decision at the end of the day about who should say that thing. And that's all right. <laughs> what? I'm taking your silence as disgust, by the way. Oh, no, I, I was trying to think about how to... <laughs> I, I think sometimes when people talk about anarchism not working or having no idea how things could work without a leader... Oh. I think what people don't understand is I think sometimes it's a a lack of organization as a problem and that there's just different ways of organizing and that people who know how to do consensus building can help help make things happen. Mm. Someone can facilitate things happening and it's it's only when everyone sits around sort of like with no idea what to do that you have the kind of classic as you kind of called it, the tragedy of the commons version of it. Yeah. Um, it's, um, I also think that it's, and again, not having worked in this industry for very long, um, one of the reasons the TV industry is, um, is affecting me in this way is because I, ha- I haven't had a boss for about 10 years, not a direct boss. And these, this time, you know, I have bosses, often several bosses, because on each show you get pro- you know, production companies and networks and everybody thinks they're the boss. But one thing I've noticed in the way people run run these rooms is you can have someone with, a, with who is a leader without having power over the other people. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's I'm absolutely I'm all right with people taking the lead and making decisions as long as those people don't have power and control over over what everybody does. Right. It's um it's one thing to have somebody with whom today the book stops and with whom today is saying, right, um, there are these five options, these are the two we're gonna go with. It's another thing to have that person be able to decide whether whether the people who came up with the options that weren't used get to eat that day or get to, you know, be with their families that day. Yeah. It's um, there's leadership doesn't have to mean dominance and control. That's what I believe. That makes sense. So have you been following the the latest round of shootings in the US and have you been following the the Dayton shooter? Yes, I have. Yeah. Um, I guess I want to, you know, earlier you're pointing out that it's hard to imagine being a feminist without being at least some stripe of leftist. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, and this has nothing to do with, well, actually, it has a lot to do with your story, but it has nothing to do with fiction yeah. in general, is the Dayton shooter who, you know, by all appearances and by Twitter feed or whatever, was clearly a leftist. And yeah. and yet at the same time, 
uh, espoused intense misogyny, at least through their art, and then, yeah. you know, presumably through the motives of their killings, although we, we don't know. Um, it's coming out now that um, his sibling that he killed, I guess, was a, a trans man who was not yet particularly out. Oh. Um, but Ooh. I've been thinking a lot about what it means to say that, you know, okay, so if you're, if you're a feminist, you probably need to be some kind of leftist. If you're a leftist, do you have to be a feminist? And, and I've had a lot of people, yeah. you know, sort of claiming otherwise, claiming that those, these are distinct spheres, but. No, that's bullshit. And I, you know that, so I'm going to like go off on a ramp, but it's not at you. Yeah. Okay. But like, look, um, it is, it's not just morally wrong. I'm not saying it's morally wrong to be a leftist without being a feminist. I, it is intellectually wrong. It's dumb. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a misunderstanding of the nature of economics and the nature of power. If you think you can separate um, gender and race from any question of economics, any question of social organization, if you think you can do that in any respect, you have misunderstood on a fundamental level what it is to be on the left in any regard. It's intellectually bankrupt. Um, and... Uh, Look, what I've what I've encountered though in um, I've encountered misogyny on the left so many times, and I've also encountered within you know more organized more organized left wing spaces people who really do believe mostly men um, people who really do believe that feminism is part of some sort of centrist or you know mainstream conspiracy to undermine the left who who you who will genuinely use words like nanny state and who associate femininity with control who genuinely believe that rebelling against femininity and rebelling against you know enforced you know these these terrible forces that want want you to kind of curb your natural violent instincts as a man they believe that rebelling against that sort of thing is makes them brave it puts them on the left and that is wrong um it's morally wrong and intellectually wrong um but i think we're kidding ourselves as a society if we don't recognize how many of these fucked up young men on the left and the and the right you know so-called they really do see themselves as rebels against the against the status quo they're all in their minds the heroes of their own story um and anybody who asks them to behave differently or with more basic respect for their fellow human beings is by definition the enemy have you had much of a response to the house of surrender um not really to be <laughs> yeah. honest a few people have written to me i think it's because it was published in um published in german first um some people have written to me um, to say that it it helped them think things through, but quite honestly, um, it's I'm not sure. I'm pleased with it as a story, but I'd like it. I would have liked to take it longer and to explore more of the mechanisms of the world. It was one of the very first stories I ever wrote, and I would absolutely do it differently now. Um, but the people who have responded have um, have done what I what I desperately hoped and wanted them to do what would happen is is that they've engaged with it very deeply and it's um it's made them think it's it's the kind of story that's meant to raise questions not offer any answers which i know is annoying 
Um, but I've been pleased. I've been pleased with that small response. Truly, really. Have you been writing much fiction since? Yes, I have. Um, and um, obviously, I've been um, I've been in these TV writers' rooms uh, now for about a year, and I've been I worked on the Nevers, which is the um, which is the new Joss Whedon show. And um, there were definitely without I'm literally not allowed to say almost anything about it, but there are definitely aspects of having you know been in anarchist and left wing circles and um, dealing with you know community organizing and dealing with the far right that have that really it was useful I think in some ways to have me there in the room because um, I'd spent the previous five years of my life doing that rather than training to be a TV writer. So I actually had, you know, some, some experience of it to bring. And, um, and, uh, now I'm on, uh, the haunting of blind manor, which is an adaptation of turn of the screw, which is a completely different story. But again, you know, I, I think the things that any writer is going to bring, their own political leanings to the table, whether or not they're explicit, whether or not the politics are anywhere explicitly in the story. Um, and I've certainly found that to be the case. And I'm also, you know, I'm also working on my own short fiction when I have the time, which currently um, I really, really don't, which is very upsetting. Um, but honestly, um, I love writing collaboratively. I really, really do. And I didn't, expect that to happen when I when I moved into TV writing um but I love that collective aspect I think you either love it or you don't and I've met writers who are very much like if somebody changes one of my ideas then you know that's that's a mortal insult and I'm more along the lines of well you know I think it was a pretty good idea I had but at the end of the day consensus is what matters isn't it and so I'll suck I'll suck this up then later somebody else will suck something else up and um and then the director will change it all anyway so um yeah I I love that I really really do and I think it's a very interesting way to write fiction and um uh I would definitely love to do fiction in that way as well as in prose fiction um I think that would be really really wonderful and um yeah I hope to be allowed to continue in some respect although I am out in LA which is not a is not a real city at all it's basically a weird forest made of with with no trees in it apart from palm trees LA is the concrete jungle New York is not New York is a city it has you know it has veins and arteries and transport and it actually in some respect works LA has absolutely nothing it's just a series of buildings melted over a vast <laughs> vast multi multi acre space and um um if it weren't that the people were actually quite nice and the work is brilliant um, I would not be here <laughs> I think that's a common sentiment from what I hear yeah, yeah. I, honestly, some I went. I walked up to see um to to see about a new place I'm trying to sublet um the other day, and I walked. God, it was less than a mile, um, and the people were just shocked that I'd walked there. And and one of them, like, was very nice of them, but like I couldn't dissuade them from giving me a lift home in a car. Did. This is less than a mile along a very safe street. I can realize it takes less time to just get in the car and out and find parking. I don't understand. I don't understand America. There's a really. there's a song, uh, Walking in L.A. <laughs> God. Yeah, well, that doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
Um, yeah, it's um, I don't like it at all. And um, as you may remember, I can't drive. <laughs> so and I don't want to drive. I don't like cars. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand why that's why that's freedom in America. It's um, a public transport. Very, very big on it. Yeah, different kind of freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, if where can people find more of your work or find you online? Um, people can find my work um, by just searching my name, uh, Laurie Penny, L-A-U-R-I-E-P-E-N-N-Y. And um, I also have a Patreon um, under the same name, which you can find more of my writing there. And at Twitter, where I'm at Penny Red. And, um, and you can find my books there. Uh, my latest book is called Bitch Doctrine. It's a collection of essays. And um, and if and if you're going to get it, get the second edition, which is much much better, and has an extended intro and um, m- many more essays for the same price. Thank you for listening. If you ever want to hear your own words on this podcast, you can submit fiction to us. Our guidelines are on our website. I want to thank a few of our patrons in particular. I want to thank Chris, Nora, Hoss the Dog, Kirk, Argo Arga Press, Natalie, and Sam. Thank you for making this show possible. And please, again, consider supporting the show on Patreon or by liking, subscribing, sharing, all that usual garbage that people tell you to do. It turns out that that stuff matters way more than I used to think it does. It uh, has a disproportionate effect on convincing the algorithms that run our world which things people should be listening to. So please help our overlords feed this information to other people. It doesn't sound so good when you put it that way, but unfortunately it still helps. Anyway, thank you. Uh, See you next month.